Hi, I'm Michelle Ward. As a mom, I've looked my children in the eyes with love and hoped I can lead them toward a bright, wonderful future. But as a neurocriminologist who's been studying violent crime for the last 20 years, I've also quietly hoped that at the very least, I'm not raising a future serial killer. And if you can relate to that taboo thought, congratulations, you've just found your new favorite podcast. This is How Not to Raise a Serial Killer. Welcome back to How Not to Raise a Serial Killer. And I'm so excited, and I say it every time, but I'm really, really excited because I convinced my friend Britt to come here. And so Britt, I knew, was just as another mom friend at school. I knew she you know, was a medical doctor, but I didn't know she was a superhero, cape-wearing type of medical doctor. And before I let her introduce herself... I have been to two specialists, a rheumatologist and a cardiologist. They both said separately that she's the smartest person in any room. And these were really smart people who said that. So whatever she says here today, you have to believe because it's fact, even if she's just telling you what her favorite color is. Wow, that's a lot to not live up to right now. So <laughs> so you just better have everything right today. Yeah. So thank you for that introduction. <laughs> I know what you do, but I need you to say it because I can't say it. So I am a dermatologist and dermatopathologist. And I specialize in something that nobody knows anything about generally, which is skin lymphoma, which is blood cancer of the skin. And then also diagnosing rashes and skin cancers under the microscope. So I think of lymphoma, as you said, as a blood cancer. But how often does it have that presentation on the skin? I've never heard of it until I met you. It's pretty uncommon, but there are blood cells that hang out in our skin because if your skin gets breached or you have an infection, we need to have cells there that are ready to fight that off. Oh. And so those are the kind of cells that might become cancerous. And so instead of being in a lymph node or in your bone marrow or in your blood, they're hanging out in the skin. Wow. So that's where they become cancerous. Do they have the cancer cells in those other areas as well, in the blood and, the, and in the bone marrow? Does it present only on the skin? So typically it presents first on the skin. And if it does or when it does advance, they don't always advance. But if it gets advanced, then it kind of backs up into the blood, into the lymph nodes. And then that's a higher grade cancer. Okay, so when it presents on the skin, does this have a better prognosis than when it doesn't because it warns you earlier? Most of them do, exactly. So there are some that are, are very aggressive, but the majority are not aggressive. Wow. Okay, see? You think you've learned about killing here, but now you're learning that that rash might be something a little bit more serious. Exactly. Okay. Well, yeah. I'm not going to ask for medical opinions because that's, you're not being paid. So, <laughs> But thank you. Anyway, I'm... I chose a case today that has an element of medicine in it because I knew that you could help me get through some of it. So I'm excited. Okay, here we go. It starts in 1975 in Leeds, Northern England. And a woman named Wilma McCann leaves her four children home while she goes out for the night. Don't do that at home or anywhere. Yeah, Don't, bad idea. Bad idea. Because when her five and six-year-old wake up and realize she's gone, they go out looking for her. In the Alone. early hours. Okay. In their pajamas. Yeah. It's bad news. The next day, Wilma is found on a sports playing field only 150 yards from her house. And she is dead, horribly battered, and um, like I said, really close to home. So it looked like she was trying to get home. Yeah. Her four children get caught up in all the commotion. Law enforcement descends upon their house. 
they're feeding them, they're giving them hot cocoa, but the kids, they're all really young. They're all like literally a year apart. They're like, okay, but where's mom? And then one of the officers says, your mom has gone to heaven and you won't see her again. So poor Wilma, she'd been smashed in the head twice, stabbed under her breasts, in her abdomen, and they weren't just like your typical stab. Whoever did this would put in the weapon and then move it around. Oh. Uh-huh. And then like step back and maybe do it again. And right? Like, I mean, I guess stabbing is strange to begin with. But, <laughs> but if you're going to do it, <laughs> it's extra strange. Yeah, do it the right way. Um, of course, not a lot of forensic evidence at the scene, but even if there were, it's 1975, so we don't have a lot. Um, actually, kind of interesting, given what you do for a living, the only real forensic um, analysis that could be done at the time is blood grouping, mm-hmm. which, as we know, doesn't eliminate a lot of people, no. especially if you're O, which right. is, you know, like everybody. Common. Very common. They learned that the night she died, she'd been at a club. It's called the Room at the Top Club. And she'd come down to the street and she jumped in the middle of the road. Okay, smart. I feel like that's something that one should avoid doing. This forced a man to stop and she asked him for a ride to Scott Hill Road in Chapel Town, which is not where she lives. Mm -hmm. It's actually a really kind of depressed socioeconomic community and it's known for crime and prostitution. I mean, it's not far from where she lived, but it's uh, it's not the greatest area. So as the investigation continued, it became clear that Wilma sometimes worked as a sex worker. The press called her a good time girl. Oh, it sounds like she was in a rough place. Well, you know what? I'm glad to hear you say that because that was about as nice as they said it throughout this entire story. Right. She's characterized as mm-hmm. the victim who caused it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And we're going to get to really frustrating part right now, which people still refer to sex workers in the most pejorative terms, but it was even worse in the 70s. They referred to this type of murder as a fish and chips murder, which means it's in the paper today and tomorrow it will be used to soak up the grease for fish and chips. That's awful. So there was very little interest in this murder. And she was probably taking care of those four children by herself. That's exactly what was going on. Her, there was an interview I saw with her son and who was like, my mom was not a sex worker. My mom, as he says, was a great mom. She had to do this every once in a while. She did what she did mm-hmm. to take care of her children. To take care of her children. And she was married. And her husband knew she was doing it. But he was an alcoholic. He's a gambler. Right. He's she's spending al- whatever she's getting. She's alone. She's alone. Taking care of these kids. Exactly. She's alone taking care of these kids. She would do things like um, be so desperate for money from the government, she'd show up to the social services office and say, I have these four kids, and if you don't give me money, I'm leaving them here. Not because she'd really leave them there, but just... I'm I'm that desperate. I'm that desperate. I need that money. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to... I'm so glad you had that reaction to it, because I wanted to kind of put that up. It's It was distressing to me yeah. to, to read about that part, and to even just see her son talking about it. Like, he loved his mom. Of course. So law enforcement wasn't too concerned. They figured that this is what can happen to a prostitute. And that's what they said. A couple of months later, another woman's body is found in Chapeltown, same area. This woman is 43-year-old Emily Jackson, and she's also a mom, mother of three. And she was splayed out, and her body was splayed out in a very interesting way. It was kind of by an alley in a street, mm-hmm. and her legs were spread bread with her feet 
pointing to the street. And it was clear that whoever did this wanted the body to be seen, to be known. Like Wilma, Emily did on occasion work as a sex worker in Leeds. And she would use her family van as a place to do this. And it was survival. Right. Her husband was on the verge of bankruptcy. Again, it's one of those situations where I don't even think the husband's probably there. Right. And if they're getting money from the government, the husband's, I think, sometimes are using it for gambling and alcoholism, you know, buying alcohol like the other right. guy was. She was known as a great mom. And her kids were devastated to hear that she was a sex worker. They had no idea. But they say, look, if she was doing that, it's because we needed to survive. Right. And her 17-year-old son had to go identify her. Oh, that's mm -hmm. awful. And he said that she had 56 stab wounds and wow. two skull fractures. And those skull fractures are what linked her to Wilma McKinn. Same appearance. Mm -hmm. Same weapon. Exactly. And some of the stab wounds were round and some were shaped like a cross. Hmm. So they deduced that it was probably a Phillips screwdriver. It's weird. Interesting. Yeah. And she also had an impression of a boot on her thigh, which they kind of attributed to overkill and disgust. And that ends up being a train of thought they run with. Right. Um, that becomes problematic. So this is only the very beginning of a gruesome string of killings between 1975 and 1981. Wow. There were more than a dozen women killed. Six years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Without even getting close to finding this guy. And most of these women, at least as far as we thought, they thought were sex workers and students. Mm -hmm. um, but it looks like there was probably even more. So anyway, this included in, 19, in April of 1977, another body. This one is 28-year-old Irene Richardson, and she's found by a dog walker on Sunday morning, again, lying with her feet pointed toward the road. Hmm. So what was weird about this case is that her boots were laid on top of her legs. Her purse is laid out neatly next to her, and the contents are all pulled out, and they're neatly stacked next to the purse. Huh. And the body's displayed in the exact same way, uh, you know, the feet toward everybody. To take the time after to do these things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Like, where's your fear of being caught? Right. Eh, that's kind of one of the difference between serial killers and you and me. We'd be like <laughs> TPing a house and like, shit, we got to run. <laughs> yes. That's because we have a healthy dose of anticipatory fear, fear of consequence, because mm -hmm. we, we work normally. So a pattern's beginning to emerge. Right. Blow to the head mutilation, and no evidence of sex. Hmm. Bodies displayed the same way for everyone to see. They deduce it's a serial killer. And the media starts calling him the Ripper because of the similarities to Jack the Ripper, who had been killing on the east side of London a long time before that, in the 1800s, I believe. Now they realize that they have a serial killer, and they're like, uh-oh. We need to get on this. We need to get on it, but not as much as they should have because they didn't care as much about the victims as they should have precisely um they're looking for some sort of forensics tire marks but they can't do it they they're dead ends i mean everybody has almost the same kinds of tires there right so 1977 also april the body of 33 year old patricia atkinson is found in bradford not in leeds and she was found in her own flat so at first, it doesn't seem like it's the same guy. Right. But because she's a sex worker, they assign her to the Ripper. And they weren't wrong. Yeah. They weren't wrong. 
And this murder was a bit of a game changer because now he's going into people's homes, not under the cover of the darkness of the night. Right. He's getting more confident, which you see with serial killers. There were boot prints and blood leading to her door and moving around in such a way that it looked like he was walking around and repositioning the body. Hmm. Yeah. He. So how the body's found is important to this guy. Right. So you hit on this, and I want to say it um, specifically as it applies to England at the time. The economy had taken a big hit, and the women who had turned to sex work were doing it as, out of desperation, like you said. Right. It was a lot more women than you would expect and from different backgrounds. And a lot of mothers, it sounds moms. like. Moms. Yeah. It's moms. Listening to law enforcement and media talk about it, though, it's jarring. Yeah. They not only dismiss them in action, but they say things like, oh, she was a woman of a lower status. Right. Or nobody thought she wasn't previously a sex worker, but in the last two weeks, she had lowered her status. Right. And I think that that puts a thought into the public's head of, don't worry, it's not going to happen to you. Right. They're different than you. Right. And yeah. they kind of had it coming. Right. There was an, and, and we know that they think that way because. Once he does kill somebody who's not a sex worker, they call it his first innocent victim. That's terrible. Terrible. That's terrible. Rude. So they had decided that he was disgusted by his victims. So this starts them down this path of profiling him as somebody who's a prostitute hater. Hmm. And he's just motivated by that hate of prostitutes. But this narrows their view. Right. So they start discounting other murders in the area. Right. So June 1977, Jane McDonald, 16 years old, was killed and her body was discovered in the playground. 16. Yeah. They called them all women, by the way. That's not a woman. That's a girl. Yeah. That's a child. It's a child. It's a child. She'd been dragged there after she was murdered. So again, he wants people to see right. these victims. His work. And like I said, they finally found some or one. She's not a sex worker. So this is the one who they called the innocent victim. I'm like, F you. And now they start trying. Now they start trying. <sighs> and, been... and they were trying before, but not with this the same effort. gusto, right? Exactly. I mean, unfortunately, people value life differently. And mm -hmm. that's one of the things in our society that should be fixed. It should be fixed. Yeah. I've interviewed um, homicide detectives from the 70s all the way to the 90s. And the older ones still call them whores. I was killing whores. Yeah. I'm like, I, I, but do I cut that? It's still a woman. <laughs> it's still a woman. And she's still innocent. She still is yeah. not like, I hope I get killed today. She's right. trying to freaking... Make money. Yeah. In the world's oldest profession. Right. P.S. So this beautiful little girl, and I have to tell you, all of these girls are pretty. Mm -hmm. And so he had a type. Right. He likes the pretty girls. But she has a different look because she's a baby. Right. She worked at a grocery store and she was walking home at night. And the police figured that the Ripper mistakenly thought she was a prostitute. Mm -hmm. I should mention they ignored other murders at the time. But this one had that distinctive put the body out in the open with the feet facing right. where the public's going to be first. So there was no denying that it was probably him and he mistook her for a prostitute. They're right. not going to give up on that. Once, you know, and we do that. Once we have decided. Yeah. He's just a prostitute killer, then that's... Right. Just keeps right. the narrow mind going. That's right. And what is it? The confirmation bias. Yeah, exactly. Keeps your story the same in your head so you don't have to worry and they can tell the 
public not to worry. Not to worry. If you're not doing this, you're not at risk. You're not at risk. You know, just those other people. So this obviously was a game changer because, like you said, before the public felt a separation, they're not fearful because, okay, as long as I and anyone I love isn't going to be prostituting, then we're cool. But now this changes it because it can happen to anybody. And it's the first flipping time that police and media refer to the deceased in this new way and papers are selling. Right. What the hell? Now people care. Now it's a popular story. So now it's all over the place and everyone's talking about it. Mm -hmm. They weren't talking about it before. So this is the 1970s. And I said the only real forensic tool is blood typing. That's not going to get them anywhere. So the police do something really funny. And you would never see this now, although I kind of wish you would. They write and publish a letter to the serial killer. Huh. They print it in the papers. I thought about reading it, but it's long. Yeah. And it's essentially like, hey, you coward. We're on to you. Obviously, we're not on to you. Otherwise, we wouldn't print this letter. <laughs> we don't know who you are. <laughs> Could you, do you mind letting us know? It, it was a funny, it was interesting. It was a very passionate letter. I just, I kind of felt like no one's going to be like, all right, it's me. <laughs> Hands up. Hands up. <laughs> and they also put this last victim's mother on the air, and she addresses him, calls him a coward. They go on to make many such pleas to this killer, mm-hmm. either in the paper or on air. Do they think that's going to stop him? I feel like there weren't a lot of people studying how serial killers worked at the time. Because right. I think we would have maybe said, mm, That he actually likes that? That he likes that. He's teasing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, well, see, you're so good at knowing what's <laughs> going to happen. I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to give it away yet. Okay, so July 1977, which is the month after June, so we're still in the right order, a woman was attacked in Bradford. So he's killed in Leeds, he's killed once in Bradford, and now he's attacked another woman in Bradford. Mm -hmm. Her name is Maureen Long, and she'd been in the same fashion, struck in the back of the head and stabbed, just like everybody else. They assume it's the Ripper again, but they don't have to assume because she survives. Oh. You go Maureen. And from her hospital bed, she speaks to police. She explains that she had been in a club and was picked up as she walked home. So they decide they can't talk to her in too much detail because it's, and I couldn't believe they knew this. It's really easy to feed details to a victim. Right. And then they endorse what you've fed them. Your memory changes. Your memory changes. And you create the story in your head, what someone's telling you. That's right. That's Elizabeth Loftus's research about how our brain fills in the blanks. Right. You can, what's that famous study? And I'm going to botch it and somebody will tell me I botched it, but I don't care. They take a bunch of Disney characters and like they throw in, they throw in a Warner Brothers character. Like they throw in the rabbit. What's uh-huh. his name? And they're like, they'll say, did Bugs you- Bugs Bunny? Bugs Bunny. <laughs> Thank you. They either remember that it's there or don't remember it's there. Whatever it is, they, they create a narrative right. based on suggestion. Yeah. So- Eyewitness testimony is the least effective right. testimony. And I, I say this all the time when we deal with criminal cases. And so many men sit on death row, and especially in the South, especially if you're African-American, based on eyewitness testimony. A single ID. Mm-hmm. Usually a white woman. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they were smart. They were ahead of the time in this. They're like, okay, we're not going to be give her info. We're going to take her to a club and get her drunk. <laughs> Much more reliable. I freaking love <laughs> the British. I love it. I'm like, so they give this officer um, this amount of money, which I can't remember. And he's like, I ended up spending three times that. She drinks a lot. <laughs> so they decided to take her to this club to see if she recognized 
this guy. Recreate the situation. That's right. Might be there preying on other victims. But I'm just like, there's a lot of pubs. Yeah. Like, how did you know which one to go to? And it wasn't the one she was in. Huh. Okay. It was odd. I suspect maybe they just wanted to go out and drink. But Probably. it didn't work. <laughs> and you know what? They've discovered she had brain damage. Um, right. She wasn't able to give them anything useful. Because she got smashed in the head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. October 1977. He's 77's a big year for the Ripper. Another body was found. And this is the most gruesome of all of them. Hmm. She is found in a garden in Manchester by these two guys who had an allotted plot and they were growing their vegetables. And one of them rolls over her with a wheelbarrow. Oh. And I saw an interview with him and he was still crying. And it's a thousand that's years later. That's terrible. Yeah. That's how disturbing it is to be involved. Yeah. To, to discover. I mean, you probably, your brain was probably like, what the? This is not normal. You don't expect to see a body. No. Um, this is in Manchester, so it's quite a ways away from Leeds and Bradford, mm-hmm. but it has the Ripper written all over her. She's been mutilated. Her face is mangled and bashed in from blunt force trauma. Oh, awful. Her breasts have been cut off, and she's been disemboweled. Oh, terrible. Now, I can't say that to everybody because that would send people leaving here, but I can say it to you because <laughs> you've seen it. It's been a while. but Yes, anyway. it has, but indeed. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that. Her name was um, Jean Jordan, and she was young, well-known sex worker in the area. So, of course, they are like, they're welcoming that, that it right. is the Ripper. And it is. It fits the profile. It is. And he had returned to move the body out into the open again. Wow. So he, and when he did, he cut her more. Huh. So two episodes, they could tell were different mm-hmm. in time. I imagine something about th- maybe there's no blood coming out of the new wounds. It didn't look good enough to him. Yeah, there weren't enough. Wow. Also, like, come on, just, you know, a couple more. Ugh. But I imagine, because it's not, you're not pumping blood anymore once you're already dead. So those wounds would look different. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm no, bleed. you know, I'm no medical examiner, but I would imagine that that would right. be different. Um in an interesting detail, they found a new five-pound note in her purse with a unique serial number that can identify where it's been distributed. Like, how crazy is that? Wow. They narrowed, like, here they have absolutely nothing for all these years and all these bodies. And then they're like, oh, money. And they could narrow it down to three freaking banks that huh. it could have been distributed to. And then they could figure out that it went to an employer to play employees. Somehow they recognized that it was in, like, the bunch that they give to the factories. Lot A. Lot two, five, six. Factory lots. Yeah. So then they go running around talking to all of the employees of the factories. And they get absolutely nothing. <laughs> so, but they were excited. Yeah. They thought it was going to work. I mean, it's it's crazy, all these twists and turns. So December 1977, another sex worker in Leeds. And she survives. Marilyn Moore. And she can talk about it. Way she go, saw Marilyn. Marilyn is awesome. Strong and woman. Here's the problem. Some of these women don't talk because they don't want to be associated. Right. Even some of them who were attacked who are not sex workers are like, uh-uh, not going to tell anybody it was the Ripper. Huh. Because they don't want that association. Right. Well, this one's like, okay, this is who did this. Um, this is what he looks like. She described him as 30-ish with dark hair and dark beard. And there were tire tracks that were found by her that were unequivocally his because mm-hmm. she saw him screech away. Right. They were able to uh, match those to some of them at the other scenes. Uh-huh. 
But it still doesn't matter because thousands and thousands and thousands have of people the have the same those. tires. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, it was like, it's like watching a cartoon. Like they get so excited and then there's nothing they can do about it. But now they have a composite drawing. Okay. They don't catch them yet. But now they have an Move idea it, what the guy At least. Like. We're moving a long way. Then there was Helen Ritka. She was found in this dark and dreary lumber yard. She had had a rough life and she and her sister had been in and out of foster care. They'd both worked from time to time in sex work, but they were very close. And her sister did absolutely everything she could to give information, to plea on air, to help find the, her sister's killer. But the public wasn't interested. Still. She couldn't get the airtime because of the sex worker element. Ugh. So then police decide to offer a uh, reward. Okay. Now we're talking. Except that didn't work either. Huh. Yeah. I mean, this is a long time it's going on. Yeah. March 1978, on Easter, under a sofa in basically, they call it a wasteland, but it's a trash dump. Yeah. Yvonne Pearson's body was found, and she'd been dead for two months. This is the eighth victim in almost three years. Huh. May 1978, almost two months later, another body, 41-year-old Vera Millwood, was found next to a hospital. Again, dragged out into public view. And this was the most public place a body had been found. There were tons of people working in the yeah, hospital. I'm thinking all of these are out in the open, whether or not it's nighttime or not. If there's someone finding them in the morning or mm -hmm. very quickly, aside from that two months, right? how has nobody seen him at night? How has nobody seen him at night? And he returns on yeah. occasion. So I think he's getting more and more emboldened by right. the fact he's not getting caught, right. which we see in serial killers. We actually Getting see that crazy. in anybody, by yeah. the way, guys. Like anyone who's ramping up, the more you don't get caught, the more the thrill's subsiding, the more you're going to take risks. And the more more you need to get that dopamine mm -hmm. rush. You need that high. You're habituating. So yep. you need, I was called tracing the dragon because, you know, yeah. that's what people say about heroin and I pretend right. I you know things. You need more and more. You need more and more. To get the same high. Right. So now he's he's getting he's a little brazing. Um this is where it gets a little bit interesting. So they realize he needs attention. So they're waiting for what he's going to do next because he is upping the ante. And then all of a sudden, they get a bunch of letters from him. Oh, wow. Uh -huh. He had a bunch of letters written to, I believe, the head of the investigation. And he references Vera Millwood. And she give, he gives a detail that nobody knew. He said she had been hospitalized in that hospital, which was true. She'd been there for legitimate surgeries. Yes. Um, but you know what that did? That letter provided some forensic analysis because of saliva. And he had that ABO group, 6% uh -huh. of men. Okay. Still too many. There's a lot of people in the UK. So 6% of them is still- It's still a lot. It's a lot of humans. But they feel like they're getting little pieces. Right. Then he sends a tape recording. He's really teasing now. Yeah. Now he's, he's just like begging to be caught now. Right. And he taunts them. He's like, oh, you must be so frustrated. You know we're closer to catch me than you were four years ago. Hmm, going to strike again. Maybe here, maybe there. I don't know. Wow. So they're just seething. Yeah. They're seething now. In April 1979, we have another body. But this body is found in the exclusive area of Halifax. It is not a sex worker. It is 19-year-old Josephine Whitaker. Mm. And she's from like a really fancy family. Mm-hmm. And now everyone's afraid again. Now, but everyone cares. Mm -hmm. September 1979, another Ripper murder. Barbara Leach, who was a student walking home from school, mm. also not a sex worker. And now everyone's talking about it again. Mm -hmm. The students are freaked out. The university starts providing buses wow. for the girls. 
It's a turning point. Yeah. Then another university student named Leah is walking home and is attacked by him. He wants them looking for him more now. He does. And I I have another theory. The the sex workers are lower hanging fruit. Right. Because they're willing to get into your car. Right. This is harder. This is harder yeah. and more thrilling. Right. It's more thrilling. He's got bored of the easy and is moving it to the more complicated, harder to convince right. you to come with him. Yeah. Type of situation. She survives. Leah survives this attack. And when she's in the hospital, they say to her, this looks like a ripper attack. And she's like, nope. Refuse. I will not be associated with wow. the ripper. Yeah. She has a chance to help catch the person who mm-hmm. did this to her, whether or not her reputation mm-hmm. gets involved. And that just goes to show you. That's right. She won't do it. Wow. Yeah. And that goes to show you how the public perception yeah. of what was going on. November 1980, Jacqueline Hill, yet another student. She's on her way home from an evening seminar. Somebody saw blood somewhere. Law enforcement comes to the scene. They see blood. They see her purse. And then they get excited and run away into another call. And I just imagine them in the hats, you know, the pointy hard hats, like didn't like almost like, oh, another call, jump back into their right. funny little car with the steering wheel on the wrong side <laughs> and run away because they missed her body, which was right there. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so these are, this is the time I'm, in my brain, it played out like a cartoon, like they were super quick and then they jumped in and sirens on and ran away again and her body was right there and they missed it. And that ended up kind of screwing up some evidence right. because too much time had, had elapsed and they could look for people in the area because it would literally just happen. Somebody heard the scream. Oh, wow. Then... A secret report comes out indicating that the police were excluding victims who weren't sex workers, and there had been a bunch of victims, some of them who lived, could provide evidence, but the police had decided to ignore him. Wow. So that's finally coming out. People are knowing it, and but they're still not changing their... Well, it seems like they could have changed their narrative a long time ago mm-hmm. and just widened it, and then people wouldn't have felt that stigma yeah, they could have. And it just, of course, when they do know it's a ripper, they include that it's, these girls aren't sex workers, but some girls were surviving. Right. And and they just, because the body's not splayed out, because there's no body, because they survived, yeah. they're not attaching it to the ripper. So yeah. it seems that if you're not a sex worker, the only way you get attached to the ripper is if you are positioned in that weird way. And you have to be dead to do that. That's right. You do have to be dead to do that. So January 1981, they're in Sheffield, and a man and a woman are in a car together, which looks like maybe he's picked up a prostitute. Right. They run the license plate, or I think they call it the number plate, and they realize that the plates don't belong to the kind of car it's on. So Mm -hmm. somebody had switched plates. It's felony. They arrest him. They bring him into the station, and the guy who arrests him looks up at the composite, looks back at him, is like, Like, hmm, hmm. strange. So this guy, he's smart. He's like, I'll be back. He goes back to where he had just arrested the guy to see if there's anything there. Yeah. Guess what? He finds a hammer and a knife. So five and a half years after the original attack, they finally have a man in custody. Meet Peter Sutcliffe, aged 35. He's a, a lorry driver, which I think means truck. He gave a voluntary statement describing each murder in specific detail down to what he asked them, what they asked him, what they were wearing, what he was wearing, what kind of car he was driving. So detailed. Wow. So detailed. And they, they enjoy Like, we'll forget the details, but the murderer usually is pretty proud of his trophies and he, he remembers. Yeah. But he confessed. He confesses. And then he reminds the detectives that they had talked to him no fewer than nine times. Wow. Over those years. For something unrelated. And he no, just... Well, actually, they did bust him a bunch of time in the red light district mm-hmm. for 
for soliciting prostitutes, but they'd actually talked to him nine times about this. They were interviewing people constantly. No way. They were interviewing you if if you were a man alone driving in a certain area, if you had been seen in this area, if you had the tires, if you had the blood type. They were doing it. Right. They were but wasting a lot of police hours. definitive to link him. Right. But it's like, if you're doing that and you talk to him nine times... And one of the officers really was highly suspicious of him, wrote up his report, brought it to his higher yeah. up, and they said, no, it's he's... Um, they didn't go search his house or his nothing. car. They said because he didn't have the right accent that matched the wow. one in the recordings. They brought in a linguist who said this is a, a Sunderland accent. Yes. Because he didn't have that. They were like, it can't be him. They didn't pursue it. Wow. He had been arrested in the red light district that I mentioned. And this... So this is just a huge, huge police bungled job. They were so confident that it was a prostitute killer that they excluded. And here's the thing, though. Serial killers, it, it, I don't know who said it or wrote it, but I'm irritated. The MO, like we have to rely on the MO. Serial killers change their MO. They change their victimology. Mm-hmm. They change their weapons. They change. It happens. It's right. More not, often than not. Right. Just like with anything with in life, anything. you evolve and change. and Evolving even, serial killers. Even serial killers. Even they can grow. Okay, so now they have their man. He is so nondescript, quiet, nice. The last person wow. you'd suspect. Scary. Well, who is this? Why is it? Why did this guy become this crazy killer? If he was somebody who everyone's like, yeah, that guy's always been weird. Right. He's, he's cold and callous, or he's impulsive and gets in bar fights. Growing up, he tortured cats. Exactly. And was a recluse as a yeah. teenager. And then you can say it. Disgruntled. Yes, there's things, there's signs. Yeah. Not here, not here. There's only one really big sign and you and I will get into it. And even it's it's hard, but I bring it up because it's an important one. I think it might be very telling in his particular case. So mm-hmm. Peter was born June 2nd, 1946 in West Yorkshire. He was born premature and he suffered complications. He struggled to survive. And in some reports, he was born completely blue. And doctors didn't believe he was going to make it. So huh. he, yeah, that's, that's May not have good. had some brain damage in may, there. May have. He spent weeks in the hospital before being released. And according to his father, he was only five pounds. He was really little. And he never, he stayed small. He never caught up. Despite the fact that all of his siblings were big, he remained scrawny and was very needy. Super attached to his mom, always hanging on her skirt. Always powerless. Mm, he's powerless. And a little meek. Mm-hmm. He couldn't really make friends. His dad said, you could go by the schoolyard at any time, and he's just standing there by himself. Didn't seem bothered by it, though. Quiet, kind, and his parents seemed like decent, loving parents. Mm -hmm. There wasn't really anything whatsoever to indicate that this guy would become one of the country's worst serial killers. I mean, I think the second in England's history. Wow. Um, And his dad said, if you'd known him, you would agree that he's the last person ever to be suspected. Hmm. So what happens when that happens? People dig. They dig for anything in your past to try to explain this away. And so somebody, one of his brothers said his dad was an alcoholic and may have like hit Peter with a bottle at one point, but that was unclear. Maybe he struck his mom at some point, but nothing that's really going to transform you from a normal quiet person into a cold callous serial killer. Like Mm -hmm. you'd expect there to be something that would be really unusual. But he was married. He maintained steady jobs. So they asked Peter, what the hell happened? And he gives the craziest story. He says, my interest in killing came when I was a teenager working as a grave digger. 
Okay. He says that he felt he was hearing the voice from God coming from one of the graves, and God wanted him to rid the earth of prostitutes. Huh. Then he started saying, I hear voices all the time, and tries to convince these psychiatrists that he has paranoid schizophrenia. Right. But then they find out that his wife was once diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, which I don't know how you get undiagnosed with that, but his wife, so he knows all the symptoms. He knows how to malinger. He knows how to fake it. So that's not happening. So he played that up big time. That's right. So he's arrested. He's going to jail for the rest of his life. And he dies November 2020. Like he just died. Wow. A freaking coronavirus. Wow. I had to read it 10 times. I'm like, what? That's not fair. That's really annoying. Is it? Or is it good? Well, I don't, I don't, did he, I don't, I'm just like, you, you got killed by the same thing that killed all the other people. I mean, and you got to live that long. That's a long time to to be risking it. And at some points he did get moved to psych hospitals. He was good at malingering. Uh And then that's like a nice existence at these psych hospitals. Yeah. Then he gets too nice. Too nice, right? Because you're not, what did they say in the documentary? You're not bad. You're just mad. He's just bad. He sounds bad. So let's talk about birth complications. When I was an itty bitty baby, first starting studying the biological genetic underpinnings of violent crime. Right. When this is the first frightening fact I learned was that there is an abundance of evidence that birth complications are related to future violence. Wow. Now, the mechanisms aren't completely understood, but they're right. not hard to guess, right. right? Like a blue baby like Peter, yeah. um Sutcliffe could be hypoxic, mm-hmm. which you can explain like lack of oxygen. Yeah. But it also makes me wonder about controlling for the birth complications because birth complications are going to be higher in people who may not have had prenatal care mm-hmm. or who may have underlying health conditions themselves. That's and, exactly right. Yeah. And that's very smart of you to say. So they did control for those. Okay. So by itself, with everything else controlled for, on its own, birth complications are related to future violence. And it's done through um, externalizing behaviors that can be seen as early as 11. Right. And they think it's mediated through low IQ. So they believe that, well, I'll read some of it. It's one of the causes of low IQ. Mm -hmm. Probably one of those multiple hit or two hit phenomenon that they might have a genetic predisposition plus the birth complications that can then... That's right. And and one of the studies that I read, they actually looked at high risk, mm-hmm. the people who were related to either a schizophrenic or criminal parent. Right. And then they had a group who wasn't. Right. And your risks are much higher, especially for, group for violent, but they're still more significant huh. than everyday people. Okay. So it is statistically significant and it's across time. Wow. So it's pretty robust that on its own, in the absence of other obvious variables, just the birth trauma, the complication itself can lead to future violence, Okay, which is really distressing because birth is really, it's not a medical condition, right? but it can become a medical nightmare really quickly. Very quickly. It's extremely dangerous. Extremely dangerous. And it's fast when it goes south. And not always foreseeable or preventable, and it's nobody's fault. Mm -hmm. Do you know as a neuroscientist, when you have a lack of oxygen, what part of the brain, like I'm sure that there is preferential Mm -hmm. constriction of vessels 
in the brain when you have a lack of oxygen? Like, is it the frontal lobe that gets constricted this? first? This is why she's here. I did not tell her that this was what I was going to say. The limbic system is actually the most sensitive to the lack of oxygen. Okay. And the limbic system is what we see wonky in psychopaths. Okay. That, so it makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah. The hippocampus in particular, but the amygdala lives there too. And yeah. that, that's where our, these emotions are seated. Empathy, remorse. And so they have a lack of it. They have a lack of it. Because their brain never got enough oxygen that's to right. develop from the get-go. See? It's freaking smart. And it affects other areas too, which yeah. could be our prefrontal cortex. Right. So we don't have the brakes to stop mm -hmm. our urges. It can affect the entire brain. But how prescient of you to know that because th that's how the human body works, it reserves resources for where it's needed most. Most emotions the, are not needed. They're not needed. For they're survival. Not survival. Respiratory center, fairly needed for right. Breathing survival. Is good. Breathing is good. Right. Yeah. So even alone, hypoxia alone, controlling for everything else, is the best predictor of lack of self-control and regulation. Wow. And we all know that that trait's highly related to future aggression, yeah. to bad behavior, criminal behavior. So these are some of the birth complications that have been studied. So the pregnancy risk factors that you mentioned, like right. prenatal care, yeah. super important. Yeah. So that, of course, is predictive as well. But even in the absence of that, they looked at anemia, edema, X-ray examinations during third trimester of pregnancy, uh -huh. placenta previa, eclampsia. This one got me because I didn't know about this one, even though I studied it. Medical stimulation of labor. That's Pitocin, people. I had Which that. I had. <laughs> <laughs> With I, my first. Oh. Yours? The first, yes, I was. the entire thing was induced. The second, just a teeny bit of it at the very end to get him going. Hmm. Hmm. That explains our first. <laughs> our first. That explains it. Um, ruptured uterus, forceps. I could talk all day about forceps. That does just very obvious brain damage. You can yeah. see indentation on people's heads. Physical brain damage, yeah. right. Umbilical cord prolapse and anything that could be a perhaps dangerous complication. And right. they were indicated to predict adult violent offending. I mean, especially preeclampsia, umbilical cord prolapse, and induced labor. Wow. Like, this is what I do for a living, and yeah. I missed that. Right. I mean, induced labor is so common. It's so common. And it reduces the risk of other dangerous things. Like, right. the baby can't hang out on you forever. Right. Exactly. So it's necessary mm -hmm. the vast majority of times that it's done. Mm -hmm. But... It's a balance to weigh the pros balance. and cons. And you never hear this as a potential con. No. No, you're right. And the safest, the best way to deliver a baby is whatever's the safest way to deliver exactly. a baby. And there's What's a lot your of, birth plan? I want to have a safe delivery and have a healthy baby. Oh, God. Can you say that again? That's for the, my birth plan. The people in the back. Your birth plan is safe and healthy. Yep, absolutely. So my birth plan was that, just whatever is needed. If, if yeah. something's happening, I have no problem with C-section. But there is this giant increase in C-sections. Um, and I think some of that stems from liability mm -hmm. issues, like doctors being sued. So yes, they figure, does. let's do that. Yep. So maybe it's not totally necessary to do as many C-sections as we do, but I still stand by because now there's a, a right. pendulum swing of women like, no matter what, I want a vaginal delivery. Exactly. Yeah. But you never want to put your child into risk. Yeah. Because guess what's happening? Guess what's bumping up against that cervix over and over again? His forehead. Yeah. Um, and then forceps delivery. So there are certain situations right. in which forceps have to happen. Like if you're stuck, the C-section's not an option, like a shoulder dystocia or something. Right, right, right. You have to get the baby out or it's going to die. Yes. 
I was working with a researcher who was studying, wanted to understand more deeply because, again, birth complication is far more predictive of violence when it's coupled with other risk factors. Some of them are psychosocial. Some of them are, you know, are, are just being related to somebody who's a criminal. Yeah. But on its own, it does it. And he was trying to understand that better. And I talked to him a bit about forceps delivery because that was the one that had always stuck out in my head. I, I might be getting this wrong, but originally forceps, the point of them is to kind of open up the cervix, but with but what ends up happening is you end up kind of guiding the head out. Yeah. You can get internal decapitations, um, which kills the baby. But since they're not used very often, they're not used well because people don't have experience. Right. right. It's so, an emergency and you hope that doesn't happen frequently. Right. So if you can... Now, if you're insisting on a vaginal delivery, and I understand why, because you are informed and you know that doctors might push for a C-section, but you don't want to end up in that position that right. you need forceps. Yeah. So it's hard and birthing is scary. It is. The the most out of control I'd ever felt in my life, the more most like a mammal I've ever felt is during the birthing process. Oh, yeah. It's a... Uh, uh, yeah. I had some scary moments in both of them. Really? Yeah. Because you do all the weird medical things. You right. have all the things. And yeah, of course. It, of course it happens. happens. Yeah. And the trauma to not only the baby, but the mother is so intense. Mm -hmm. And the things that can become long lasting, whether it's a birth complication, but even I think the trauma to the mother of the birth process then influences their care for the baby in the after times and influences their risk of postpartum de depression or anxiety or even psychosis at its most extreme Okay, because you go through a lot of trauma. Exactly. So maternal rejection within the first year of life yeah. is the that coupled with birth trauma, you're going to get a bad kid. Yeah. And it's zero to 12 months. You'd think maternal rejection would matter more when you're older. Yeah. It matters more when you're a brand new baby. Huh. Isn't that weird? Couple, if those two things are coupled. But when the way you said it makes me believe that one can lead to the other. Yeah. So if you have a really traumatic delivery. Yeah. And maybe, the baby's kind of blue. And then you're like deep into postpartum. And the hormones, like first, yeah, birth is violent. It is. It's violent. It is. If it's coming out of your vagina yeah. or if it's pulled out of your uterus from an incision through your abdomen, it's violent. Yeah. It, I mean, I wish it could be the magical experience that all of us wanted it to be. But I remember after having my first child, I was like, I am never going to lie to a upcoming mother about what this process is like because I had no idea. And then it wasn't all rainbows and butterflies. And to be able to accept that and be like, it's okay, I'm gonna get through this. And it wasn't that way for everyone else because a lot of times you get that talk that it's just magical and breastfeeding is so easy oh and it's just natural and it happens for everyone. No. And it doesn't. It hurts, by yeah. the way. No one talks about that first 10 seconds after they latch where you're like, no flipping way yeah, people I'm do doing this. this. Yeah. Or even the birth process of like, where they're like, okay, push. And I had an epidural, but it wasn't working very well. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wait, you're asking me to like do something on purpose that's going to hurt like crazy? It's like you sprain your ankle and they're like, okay, now you take your ankle and now just a couple times just like pull it yeah. in the same direction that you just sprained it. And I'm telling you, you have to do it. And you're like, are you kidding? Yeah, so counterintuitive. Like, yeah, like I'm going to do that to myself yeah. right now. 
I'm going to push this out of my body. Yeah. Yeah, of course you want it out, but at that point you just want to die. You're yeah. like, this hurts so badly. I'm not going to, I can't do anything. Right. Oh, yeah. I know. It's, anyway. It's no joke. We digress. It's, it, well, and it's, that's an important part too, because I had not made that connection because that actually leads to some of the other risk factors. Yeah. And I hadn't thought of it that way, that the trauma on the mom yeah, too. Yeah, real. And especially having a baby who has complications because that intense worry, like if your baby isn't with you in the nursery or, you know, your your hospital room after because they have to be cared for and they're in the the neonatal ICU mm. and you don't get to hold them and cuddle them and, and be mm. with them for, you know, days or weeks or months that Ugh. how traumatic that can be too. And to transition into parenthood in such a away is so difficult. I have chills as you're saying right? that, just thinking about that whole process of yeah. you're traumatized of what you just went through and then someone takes your baby away and then you're right. missing all those hormones that happen right. when you nurse and when you right. cuddle. When you have the skin to skin mm-hmm. and you're with your infant. My, my oldest had two days in the in the NICU because she had a fever. Everything was fine, but- How'd she get a fever? Because she took forever to come out. I uh, got it. So she's so, exposed to stuff. Yeah. I had a fever. She had a she fever. It was one of those where it was like, we get her out right now or we're doing a C-section. Mm. They're like, push through it. And I'm like, are you kidding? No, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to do it. <laughs> but <laughs> I did it. <laughs> I'm just going to stay with it in my birth canal for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, and it's such an interesting phenomenon because there are benefits. There's there's benefits to it. Okay, C-section is a nasty, it's not a small procedure. Like no. and everyone has them, but it's a big surgery oh, yeah. with a lot of maternal risk. Yeah. People ignore how hard it is mm-hmm. on the mom to have a C-section. Mm-hmm. It's just a lot of inherent dangers to it. Yeah. But remaining in the birth canal and not coming out and being epoxic or hypoxic. Exactly. I'm not sure I know the difference between those two words. And getting your head banged against the cervix and maybe having forceps, that's bad too. But one weird benefit of a vaginal birth that I did not know about is the exposure to bacteria in yes. the birth canal. Yeah. Can you talk to me about that? It is. It's really important for the baby. They, you know, all of us have bacteria all over our bodies, which is necessary for life. And when the baby comes out, they go through that process wherever, you know, however long it takes. And the the vaginal flora that we have gets into the baby's nose and mouth. Ah. And that is their first exposure. And flora, you know, bacteria and yeast and all the other magical things that live on us, uh, helps to start that baby healthy. And okay, that starts their immune system and gets them active to get all of their T cells and their B cells and all the parts of their immune system going and starts them with kind of a balanced flora because they're getting their mom's flora. Okay. And that's the other thing with antibiotics. So my oldest had to have antibiotics during those first two days because she had a fever and all sorts of bad things can happen when a baby has a fever like that. So you have to, right? Because they can be devastating consequences. Is, that, is it more risky for a newborn to have elevated Absolutely. body temperature like that? Not the fever itself, but the cause of the fever. Okay. So if it is bacteria or virus, you can get sepsis and meningitis. Because you have no immunity. Right. And it just goes straight to the areas you don't want it to go to, like the brain and the spinal cord and in the blood. Oh, gosh. And so they have to have antibiotics. and But it actually wipes out that flora that they were just exposed to. So repopulating it happens by touching individuals, by breastfeeding, 
Uh, and that's kind of, you know, as our society has gotten more and more clean, mm -hmm. that kids aren't getting exposed to the things they used to when they used to play in dirt and play not. with animals. And all of those things are actually good for kids. You know, they they say that, like the 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 studies of like the kids who are drinking water with the goats and like yeah. they, they have a stronger immune system than than we do. They, well, and and even things like peanut allergy. Mm -hmm. It used to be like don't expose your kids to peanuts until a certain age, uh, because if you have a peanut allergy, it can be dangerous. And now we're saying like, no, we need to do those exposures earlier okay. because it's the lack of exposure that gives you the allergy. And obviously there are children who have very significant anaphylaxis or in you know born with allergies that's the exception but in general um exposure is a good thing for kids so you as the medical profession and genius that you are were probably freaking out you're like that did not that birthing did not go the way i planned the fever is unexpected i happen to know what happens after antibiotics so that had to make you so anxious well and that is also like the first introduction into parenthood and for me that transition from being like i am not in control of all of these things because you know, uh, all of us who like to be in control of our lives, I, I assume you're the same I way. Am a little bit. That for me was the biggest transition into parenthood at all. That first year I was like, oh, I'm not in charge of the schedule. I'm not in charge of what happens. I just need to be part of this. She is. Yeah. That seven pounder. Right? <laughs> and that was the biggest lesson, I think. Oh, that's so interesting. That changed me as an individual. Well, because it's you have been able to control so much of your life, and you usually are the one in the scrubs. Yeah. And having control over right. somebody's health care, yeah. somebody's future, that recommendations. Now you're in the stirrups, and you're like, uh, someone else is telling me how to do this. I have no control. And also, no no one has control over the birthing process. No. And I'm like, whatever you say to keep me safe and my baby safe, I will do. Good for you. Yeah. I should mention that her husband is an emergency room doctor, so I'm sure he had a few opinions in the labor and delivery room, he too. Was, he was mainly there for ventilation backup. He okay. was like, I'm just here to keep your airway. <laughs> in case you need it. Yes. Here's my intubation, some supplies. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Yeah. I would imagine that the process, because I could, you know, let go and let it give it to a medical doctor. But I, for you, knowing what you know, that must have been um, trickier. And I do want to say for those of you whose babies were born blue, that's not that uncommon. My second was born blue. And the, well, just as, I'm a little paranoid because of the labor induction in the blue. Just his arms and legs, like a little blue. Yeah. But it looked weird to me because my first didn't look like that. Right. I, there's grading of the blue and there's that APGAR score that goes into like, you know, what condition the baby is in when they come out. And and, and there is a normal blueness to all of them. I remember okay. with my second and even like the pictures of him, I'm like, oh, he looked very blue. It's it's also how quickly they pink up ah, and okay. what parts of them. So there, yes, there are degrees and all babies are bl born somewhat blue. And that that score for the blueness is, is like never perfect. Okay. And then there's other factors like we're talking about just even the birth complication, while it does have a relationship to future violence in and of itself, it's really impactful when it's combined with something else. And similarly, the blueness itself probably isn't... The, by itself, it's ha the other... Yeah, the degree to which they're blue. Okay. Are they breathing on their own, I'm sure? Do they need ventilation help? 
And so many babies do need ventilation help. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, okay. it's tough on those little guys. Yeah. Well, yeah. then you have the whole meconium nightmare. Exactly. Charlotte had that. So exactly. She didn't require ventilation help. It, it, it can happen. And, and the reason I bring it up, because now I'm imagining if you're like me, you're sitting at home going, oh, shit, I had two blue babies. Right. Now they're going to be killers. It doesn't work like yeah. that. It's not a one-to-one. And the brain's plastic at that age. Like, there's a lot of oh. overcoming. Oh, my gosh. What oh. the things that children can come back from with hypoxia, whether it's like partial drowning or anything like they, they are able to recover and their brains are so much more Thank God. repairable yeah. than, than us old yeah. people. <laughs> the damage, <laughs> forget <laughs> yeah, it. It's There's not any amount of biofeedback that's no. changing what I've done to my brain. And do you know the, like the relative risk factor for the, for the hypoxia? It's, it's okay. Very so significant. It's depends Because so on, many babies are born yeah, that it turn into completely normal, normal people. adults. And that's why I wanted to say it. So if your baby's hypoxic and they're doing resuscitative measures and helping with a lot of things, your baby still's probably not going to become a killer. Right, right. The grandfather of all of this research, my mentor, Adrian Rain, he was born hypoxic. Uh-huh. He was born around, I mean, later than Peter Sutcliffe, but the same part of England. Right. And he's like, uh, I am now a tenured professor, researcher, and this guy is a murderer. Right. Like, and he attributes his lack of sense of direction to uh-huh. that hypoxia, um, which that's I think a good is, excuse. Yeah, no, I'm like, <laughs> I just think you're British and the streets are weird right. there. But that goes to show you that it's this is related. This could be why Peter Sutcliffe became a mm-hmm. killer. It's it's related to externalizing behaviors, and you'll see that in your kid. This is what was so unique about him is whatever he was doing, he wasn't showing it to anybody else because of his shyness. Right. He wasn't. He wasn't outwardly showing any behaviors that but typically in a hypoxic situation like that the kid's going to have externalizing behaviors that happen sooner most serial killers you know the psychopathic ones tend to be bright right in these hypoxic situations they they might not be that might be related to lower iq but again your blue baby is not going to necessarily have a low iq yes so we can't look at it as it it can be related it's can be causative, but it's it's not common. It's not the sole factor that's going to right. influence this. It is very it is very rarely the sole factor. Usually there is another risk factor, but there is one in particular that are seemingly unrelated. And if you put them together, then you need to work. That's a recipe for mm-hmm. for disaster. But your blue baby is going to be okay. But it, it's still important to recognize that birth complications mm-hmm. have some problems. So be aware that mm-hmm. while it's really recommended that you have a birth plan, be flexible. Or the next step would be what kind of potential interventions can occur after you have a hypoxic baby that might yeah. prevent transition into some of these behaviors. And that's when we bring in the fish oils, the omega-3s. We bring in biofeedback um, as early as you possibly can. And I would make, you know, your doctor, go to a neurologist, like make sure everyone knows that it's a hypoxic baby. To have some identification of these red flag behaviors Mm -hmm. even earlier so Mm -hmm. that they're being monitored. Like if they're two and three and four and five years old to watch for some of those behaviors 
be able to intervene. And there are interventions. And right. that's why this podcast is how not to raise a serial killer. You're not going to be able to help it if your baby's blue. Exactly. But there are things that you can do. And just being aware of it, being like, okay, I think my baby's fine. I'm not going to be paranoid. Michelle said the risk is low. But it's still important information for parents because, mm-hmm. you, as you said, intervention, especially when the re- brains are young and plastic, right. is key. Yeah. And, and there are things you can do. And even... It, even as they're older, like you got it at the best time. That's the brand new baby. But even in drownings, when they're a little older, you can see this incredible recovery. Right. The brain, absolutely, just neuronal growth yeah. around getting around a problem. I met a perfectly normal man. I scanned him. He was missing a temporal lobe. Wow. He had no idea. But that goes to show you how the brain compensated. Yeah. Absolutely. So, and there are things you can do to kind of push that along. Medical interventions and some like even just like behavioral interventions yeah, that can be done. Exactly. So that's an important one. Hi, this is future Michelle jumping into this episode that's already written and recorded because I forgot to tell you something when I was recording it. So there's the standard of care, just general accepted treatment that happens if a baby is born hypoxic. And depending on the level of severity, usually what they'll do is administer therapeutic hypothermia. And what that means is they cool the baby down at a few degrees for about three days. And this can reduce, slow down and reduce the injury process and actually minimize the spread of the damage to the brain. It can be effective, but it isn't always effective. So they've been exploring other options that they can either add to the therapeutic hypothermia or use alone. One of those treatments is called allopurinol. And it's a uric acid reducer, and it looks like it can reduce cell death in the brain, which obviously would be important. I don't know what stage of research. I don't know how often they're applying this in conjunction with the therapeutic hypothermia, but it's certainly a question to ask. The second is a drug. It's called EPO, um, which is erythropoietin. It's been studied quite well in animals, and it can be given either right away and this is the best part, it can be given later. And that is neuroprotective and neurorestorative, meaning it protects the brain from future damage and also restores some of the damage that happened. Again, I'm not a medical doctor. I do. I have no idea about all of these processes. I've never seen them done. I don't know anything about them. But if these therapeutic efforts do eliminate the brain damage, then I can only imagine they would reduce this increased risk factor for violence as well. So anyway, just something to know. I think it's really important that we do understand all those things and how they play into the development of the child because, you know, it's only been recent that people talk about maternal mental health and how important it is not only for the mom, but for the baby. And it's this bond. Absolutely. I don't think that after my first baby, you know, you go for your like, whatever, your one week post partum check. And then after that, they're like, okay, great. We did our job. See you later. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so important to maintain that connection and to maintain some sort of entry into the medical system where you can be screened for postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, and heaven forbid, postpartum psychosis for the mother's health, but the baby's health too. You're bringing up such a great point because we are a much greater risk for all of those things you mentioned than you are for blue baby leading to serial killer. Exactly. And so, so many things are lacking in maternal health 
from the beginning to the end, which should go on much longer than it does, in my opinion, in general. And I'm sure that there are wonderful practitioners out there who do this already, but it is definitely not the norm. I have never felt such an emotional nightmare roller coaster as th- th- as I did after. And I knew it was, oh, these are hormones. I just had a baby. It's fine. We're fine. But I literally looked at her and I was so fearful yeah. that something was going to happen to her. And then I became even more fearful that I was going to be the one doing it. Yeah. That it's my fault. It's yeah. all up to me to keep this human alive. And that pressure, mm-hmm. it's like, it. yes, there are maternal instincts, but it is not easy. Yeah. And I did want to throw her out the window sometimes yeah. when she was screaming all night you long. You don't know and what not to do. And, and you're so tired. And the other thing, like between my two deliveries, the first one took forever. Mm. And the second one was so fast. Oh. And my own mental state entering into motherhood for those two different times felt so different because oh. I was exhausted with the first one. I'd been up for 36 hours they don't feed you, you're like delirious. Mm -hmm. And now they're like, here, take this baby home and stay up for, you know, all hours of the night and you don't know what to do, right? I mean, that's motherhood. It's torture, I'm sorry, there's no sleep. Right, there's no sleep. And I feel like any human without sleep is not at their best and way more impaired than when you're drunk, right? They've done those studies for driving. And then the difference with my second one, where it took like four hours from start to finish, and then you have this baby, you know, he just came out and it was so easy. The calm that I felt inside of me, yes, it was my second baby, but like, I think that that lack of sleep and lack of food just throws a mother it's that's the trauma i mean right? you get hangry even when you're not delivering a baby exactly or, well and they don't tell you this you don't sleep well that last month anyway because you're right you're an orca yeah and then you're up going through war yeah they're like here do the hardest thing you've ever done in your life physically and do it on no sleep with no food Let's right see how well you do and then we're gonna wake you up every hour on the hour for the next six weeks yes there's so much admin with yeah. a newborn it's not just is. nursing it and going back to bed it poops forty thousand times while you're nursing it yeah and then it and it's magical and beautiful and you've never felt love like yeah. this and i felt like i had i looked at my daughter when she was first born and i took a picture of this moment and i said i will never have a bad day again yeah I, she's here this yeah. is all i've ever needed but then it was the getting up in the right. middle of the night. I'm like, oh. and I remember my OBGYN was like, you know, he'd been monitoring her. And, you know, there was one point where she was, she was very, very, very thin. Her waist was very small and they were concerned. Now I look at her and I'm like, yeah, this is just she's still the she's same. built. Yeah. And he said to me, all right, Michelle. So now any questions about you, anything that happens with you, you talk to me, not the baby anymore. I don't do anything with the baby anymore. And I'm like, what? What do you mean? You're the one who tells me she's okay and her liver looks good. And he's like, oh yeah, no, I'm not oh, going to no. pick her up. Yeah. He goes, so if she looks jaundicey, you got to tell someone. If she looks like this, you got to, I was in tears. Yeah. I'm like, not me. You're like, I'm alone. How do I do this? Yes. And I'm not good. Yeah. I'm tired. Yeah. Thank you. I feel like we need moms to know that because we we don't get enough freaking breaks. Right. uh, Yeah. It's magical. I love my babies more than anything on the planet. Yeah. But like, as my grandma used to say, hard work makes life sweet. And they are hard work. (laughs) They are. Yeah. And they come out the way they come out. Yeah. Figuratively and literally through your vagina, through your stomach, and they come out with that personality. Yeah. And you can nudge it, but they they don't change. They don't change. (laughs) I remember a woman I used to work with when I had my first child. She had two kids who were 
several years older. She was asking me what she was like and her personality. I'm like, I don't know. She's a newborn. And she's like, well, she's not going to change. This is going <laughs> to be her. So start to get used to it. And I was like, I thought she was crazy. And she's so spot on. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Predispositions are strong. And that's, you know, yeah. genes matter. But we become better parents when we recognize we got to parent the kid we were given, not the kid we wanted, exactly. not the kid we thought we could make. Yeah. I always say that I ordered a French-speaking ballerina and I got Pippi Longstocking. And you know what? I freaking love it now. Exactly. My daughter is so similar and so different from me when I was her age. And like to to love all the parts that I don't know how to parent because they're so different from me is like, oh, this is an adventure and I need to figure out how to support these parts of you that I don't have. Mm. And this artist that you want to be that I am not. You're such a scientist and yeah. social dad and she wants She's to be- She's so creative. Oh, she that, really is. Yeah. I've seen her stuff. And, you know, so it's fun to try to figure it out. And this idea that we can, we give ourselves so much- credit right and so much blame right i feel like it's like if you have this 180 degree like trajectory you're like limited in these 10 degrees like mm -hmm. you could be on this side or this side but that trajectory is still heading in the same direction and you can nudge but that's it that's what yeah. i keep saying like work with what you have you can yeah. and you have power in the nudge yeah but you're not going to make an introvert out of an extrovert and vice versa exactly well luckily for your two children you have also passed on you have your very attentive present parents you guys are always with your kids and you gave them good genes. I hope. I don't know. And they're also really cute. <laughs> I don't know about that. Well, as an outsider, <laughs> oh, I feel like you've, you've done an incredible. I always say that my kids go to school with kids whose parents I want them hanging yeah, out with. Exactly. Because that matters. Yeah. All right. I've eaten up. All right. You got to go to work. This was fun. It was fun. Thank yeah. you so much for coming. Yeah. My I mean, pleasure. I owe you. I'm taking you out to lunch or dinner or something in between. Well, you don't have to take drinks. me out, but we can do it. No, we're doing it. So this has been How Not to Raise a Serial Killer, and I'll see you next week. How Not to Raise a Serial Killer is a Cloud 10 Media production, executive produced by me, Dr. Michelle Ward, and Sim Sarna. Our editor is Emily Crane. Our music was created by Josh Cook, with artwork provided by Brian Stefanik. Follow us on Instagram at How Not to Raise a Serial Killer and on TikTok and Twitter at Hentrask. That's at H-N-T-R-A-S-K. And if you'd like to share a story or ask a question, you can email us at hownottoraiseaserialkiller at gmail.com or call and leave a voicemail at 818-392-4403. If you like our show, do me a favor and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. After all, if more people know about the show, maybe fewer kids will turn into serial killers. Who knows? Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.